0: Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Staub.
1: Alright, welcome to Legally Sound Smart Business. My name is Nasser
2: Pasha. And I'm Matt Staub, and we're two business attorneys with Pasha Law.
1: Yeah, welcome to the podcast today. We are doing our ultimate legal breakdown of the subscription box business.
2: Yeah, look looking forward to this one. It's a uh it's a pretty fun topic because Subscription boxes can offer many different things. I'm sure that most listeners have probably, you know, either ordered their own subscription box or maybe have their own business. But <laughs> but you say most people either have their own business, subscription box business. <laughs> most
1: people have subscribed to one, at least. I mean, yeah, uh, some people are addicted to it. Well, it's, it's nice. And they can be addicting. Yeah.
2: And we'll, we'll get into why that's the case. But so, yeah, just for, for those of you that aren't aware, I mean, subscription boxes, it's a pretty simple concept, at least the, the service aspect of it. Basically, you, you pay, a, pay an amount and every it's typically every month, but every month you you know get a delivery to your doorstep and it contains a box full of, of items and it can be anything. I mean, I think the ones that people might be most familiar with might be like a Blue Apron, a food service or, or Nature Box. What was that? Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave. Loop Crate. Loop Crate. Seems right. popular too. Right. But I mean, the general concept is... You know, you pay this monthly amount and every month you get a box of different items. And most of them are themed to, like I said, some sort of concept behind it, whether it be food, whether it be some sort of artistic thing. It's really at this point, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty booming industry. So it could be anything few and far between. I believe when we checked here, $5 billion industry, 2,000 different services according to my subscription addiction, which is my go-to for subscription box statistics. And it's
1: growing. I mean, 3,000% as far as online visits for subscription companies, people are interested in the last three years. People are interested in this stuff. And it seems like there's basically two types of these businesses. The ones that curate products that they basically pick a theme, like you said, the the blue apron, Mm -hmm. where they just kind of put together food that might be good for this particular recipe or or some of them actually create their own product and it may be a different product every month or different somehow they're actually the the creators of it so it's two types of categories there
2: right and you know we're going to get into this later but obviously if you have the the latter, there, the one where you're creating your own your own product that you're delivering out, you might have a little bit less to worry about from a legal standpoint. Well, I, I guess I should I shouldn't say that less and more. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a different type
1: of liability.
2: So let's get into some some of these big issues here for these businesses, and I think it all kind of starts where a lot of businesses do with you know the underlying contract. In this case, the the terms and conditions for the services. You know, I, we've, I've ordered my own subscription boxes. I've kind of looked around it, some others, just to see what's out there, and it's surprisingly a pretty wide array of terms and conditions, terms of service, whatever you want to call it, that are out there. And some of them are very well detailed. Some of them are horrible. Yeah, it's. I was gonna. I was gonna put it bit nicer than that, but yeah, they're just no.
1: They are. They are. They are horrible. When when we have a few subscription box clients, and when we were, in fact, it was probably our first one where i i we actually did a survey of all the other subscription box services in their in their terms of conditions and we found that most of them just copied and pasted from each other yeah. and Unfortunately, the one that was kept being duplicated is one of the worst examples. <laughs> so, like, granted, it was also the easiest one, too. So, that's probably why it got yeah. copy and pasted, and obviously not written by a lawyer, unfortunately.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, that's, it, I guess, that's the first thing to keep in mind here is this is not a, even if, even if your subscription business is similar to, you know, one you're looking at, this is not a copy and paste situation because, you know, it it is going to be specific things pertaining to your specific subscription, and so, you know, we'll get into some of the the key pieces here. And you know, let's talk about a quick example. I know this is one that you've subscribed to the the Julep, the makeup related subscription box.
1: I don't know. I I just I signed up for the free offer, and I thought it was just something small, and then I just got caught up into a long term subscription. I look at my
2: credit card, and they've charged me you
1: know, 18 times <laughs> in the last year and a half.
2: Yeah. So, so they call it negative option marketing or negative option subscriptions. I I call it automatic renewals. I, I guess it's, you know, whatever you want to approach it. But yeah, basically what you just said is, you know, people can sign up for this, this free, free trial period. But what they didn't realize is they have to physically opt out of these ongoing services. And like you just said, it's, and I don't know if, whether you actually did it or not, but it's, <laughs> no. people were just weren't aware of it. And, you know, they look at their credit well, the people that do look at their credit card bill and, you know, found out, oh, I'm actually getting, getting charged for this. I thought it was a free trial and, you know, what's going on here. And that's, this is a big component to any sort of reoccurring business, you know, reoccurring payment model, which all of these subscription based businesses are for the most part.
1: Yeah, and, and this is kind of an old scam, if you will, but it's it's become more popular because of these subscription box businesses. It's it's kinda of coming come into play again because in the past I, I mean again, like it's an old scam. I remember when you try to get your free credit report, for example, and, and somehow you got that, that, that's a classic one. And somehow they got your credit, you know, to get your credit report that you put in your credit card information. And then in the very, very fine print, they would charge you a monthly fee and you wouldn't notice until later. And it was nominal. It was like it, it could have been like 10, 10 bucks a month. But of course, you do that across many different people. It it adds up. And so in, in this case with Julep Beauty, they ended up having to pay a three three million or I believe it was a some kind of settlement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll pay three million to the attorney general of Washington because the attorney general of Washington—that's that's where the the company was based—basically sued them for deceptive negative option marketing tactics. And almost every so so let's take talk about the law here. So you have the FTC from a federal basis, and then you have all fifty states have some kind of addresses in some way how consumers interact with these auto renewal policies to a certain extent. And California is probably the, the, the best one to look at it from, you know, mostly subscription boxes. You don't, you know, uh, these businesses, you don't just offer services or products in one state, usually countrywide. And California has a statute which basically says that if you're, if you have a sign up and and there's an auto renewal and you are charging the credit card every month, then it has to be clear and and conspicuous. Mm -hmm. And then even credit card companies now have different policies and so forth that you have to disclose this to to your customers. So the era of negative option marketing is is pretty much dead. So if you have a business model that is depending upon people forgetting to terminate your, (laughs) your service, it's probably not the best idea.
2: Yeah, and particularly with these, with these actual physical boxes. You mentioned free credit report. It's very easy if you signed up to forget about it. It's not like they're sending you your credit report in the mail every one every month. With this, you know, you would at least become more aware of, you know, a package that's being sent to you every month, and they're like, oh, I actually do need to cancel that. Which kind of brings us to our next point here is, you know, it's you said clear and conspicuous, the cancellation policy is going to play into this as well. And it has to be very clear and conspicuous on how people can cancel this ongoing, you know, reoccurring billing because that's, <laughs> there's been a, a huge wave of, I think there's actually been multiple waves of uh, class action lawsuits because, you know, the, the item we just discussed and then these, the issue of the, you know, the cancellation policy not being clear or, being hard to cancel as well, so it's it's really twofold in that sense. Even companies that are are
1: so-called legitimate, you know, I would I would consider legitimate. Not that this other Julep company is not too legitimate. I'm just saying the ones that are trying to actually provide a good service mm-hmm. fall into this trap too. I believe Spotify was part of a class action that related to this, and and I'm, I'm not sure necessarily they they end up violating the law in that respect, but it's it's something very easy to fall into, and so mostly subscription box businesses do you have auto renewals? It's part of the business model, right? Someone signs up and they get charged every month. And so making sure that the sign up process is clear, your terms and conditions are clear, the termination, the cancellation process is very clear and compliant with the law is, is a little bit of a moving target because we we've already seen just as late last year of new laws being passed in this regard.
2: Yeah. And just to mention, you know a couple of the companies involved here. So you know this is just a handful: Blue Apron, which we've already talked about; uh, Sirius XM Radio; Birchbox, another one of the big ones; LifeLock. That's a big one. AAA, Blizzard Entertainment, which I guess is World of Warcraft. So yeah, I mean it's it's not like it's a bunch of small operations that just are don't know the law or are trying to scam people. I mean these are I assume companies like Blue Apron and and the like aren't trying to scam customers and getting trying to lock into. They're just trying to feed people
1: exactly. So, what else in the in the terms and conditions do you want to make sure you have covered?
2: Well, uh, I mean, and it kind of leads into some other things too. But I think the the way that you present the terms and conditions is also important. I don't we didn't really go into detail on that, but most people, I mean, or most of these businesses are going to be set up obviously online, and people are going to go to their website and they're going to select if they have, maybe they have multiple options or maybe they just have one. They're going to select whichever option they want and then at some point they're going to have to come across the terms and conditions so it's a matter of you know where those terms and conditions are at how the per how the customer is signifying acceptance and agreeing to these terms and conditions and then you know it it, it get, does get even a little bit thicker particularly in california just with where some of these notices we've been talking about where they're even located or how close they are to you know the spot where you would the customer would would show acceptance of the terms and conditions
1: it's not as simple as just putting up a form and a checkbox anymore even proof that they even signed it or 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 agreed like that might be your process of signups but if you get into a legal dispute how are you going to prove that they agreed to that? Mm-hmm. In other words, is what evidence are you going to be able to show? And that that has to do with a technological uh, solution by actually recording that information when they signed up, what version of the terms and conditions to sign up. So yeah, it's I mean good points. It's it's a lot more complicated than it used to be, I think.
2: Definitely, and that, so that's you know we're just talking about the actual logistics of the the agree the terms and conditions itself, but you know, going back to the substance of it you know, one thing that you're going to encounter if you're one of these businesses is a return policy and yeah.
1: And having one, yeah. I
2: mean, uh, and, and maybe,
1: maybe your return policies, you don't have, you don't allow any returns sure. and and that may be fine, but it's what we talked about in the past with any kind of contracts, right? It's about creating expectations between the parties and dealing with issues that may or may or may not come up. So, uh, return policy is pretty standard and there, there's a bunch of other issues one one of the other ones that come to mind is limitation of liability because when you are shipping products to them whether the, sh- the products get lost who pays for that whether the products themselves somehow injure the party and limiting yourself in, in that respect can relate to terms that you put into your terms
2: and conditions mm-hmm. and kind of uh, blending those last two points together if you do allow returns or refunds for damaged goods et cetera, and the shipping aspect of it what about the situation you know how how are, how is the customer going to send those items back to you is that already paid what's the logistics of that where does you know where does risk of loss shift to it's it's that's I said it really can no no pun intended here it could really open up a box of issues that's not even a saying i don't know why i even said it. there's just a lot of considerations i think the way to go about it is to is to sit down and kind of map out every stage of your operations and kind of legal spot the different issues that can pop up. And then in every, in your terms and conditions, you know, have a section in each, you know, for each one of those different points of operation addressing what the rules are. I mean, that's, that's going to at least, what can
1: go wrong. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You need to plan for the worst and you need to outline that. And, you know, you might have mentioned this, but really, you know, there's, there's the rules, there's the terms and conditions that are written down, particularly I'm talking about for like a return policy, for example, and then there's customer service. So, you know, even when you're in the right and you've covered yourself as a business and, you know, there's still customer service. Cause as you know, you, as people can see, there's, you know, one bad review can result in, you know, a lot of bad publicity and people start questioning things. Maybe you get cancellations you know, it's, so if it's something that's avoidable, then you might want to consider that too. Even if, even if you've drafted a terms and conditions that protects you.
1: And and reality is a, a good attorney will take your terms and conditions and hand in hand related to your customer service. It's in other words, there shouldn't be such a detachment between your philosophy and how you treat your customers and your terms and conditions. There can it can it can have some nice overlay and 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 not go crazy with some of the terms that maybe you would otherwise see in some other agreements.
2: Mm-hmm, exactly, well, I think we're still gonna talk about terms condi- terms and conditions, at least kind of what's in those, but we're gonna talk some, some broader areas here.
1: Yeah, we, we talked about the limitation of liability in your terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. That's kind of an interesting topic because in general, when it comes to, and I'm talking about both the businesses that create their own products or even curate products has issues if the product itself may somehow injure the consumer. And injury can come in different ways (laughs) if it's something perishable or, or consumable and somehow it causes food poisoning or what have you or if you just have a product that is defective and somehow injures somebody you know whether it's an exploding battery or just something that is inherently dangerous or if it's a toy that's for babies but is not appropriate because of lead paint or something to that effect and 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 generally the the law is such that both the manufacturer that in that in that case it could be the ones that are actually making the products But even the distributors and resellers and sellers of products could also be strictly liable for any kind of defects in these products. And just think about that for a moment. You had nothing to do with making this product, but if there's a defect in that product and it's in your box and it injures somebody, you could be liable. And I say could be because there are limitations to it. But for example, crate.com, which they they curate goods, right? Uh, They just... Throw a bunch of stuff in there. Mm-hmm. I have no idea yeah. what's in there. I've never been a patron. But the, not too recently, or not too long ago, they had a recall of a product, Marvel Thanos Infinity Gauntlet Oven Mitts, which sounds awesome, by the way. Looks pretty cool. Is there a picture? I'm trying to,
2: I I just have a bunch of... Yeah.
1: You know how often when they do these recalls, it's just like very plain and...
2: It's a cool design. Okay, I'll have to find it.
1: Oh, here yeah, I see it. Oh, okay. It looks... Yeah, it looks like... <laughs> It's like a comic based, I don't know, I don't even know how to explain it. it
2: looks like, yeah, like a robot hand or something. You're you're the you're the person for this <laughs> stuff, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about this
1: one, but so so anyway, so so they issued a recall and the uh, apparently the thermal protection wasn't good because obviously it's an oven mitt and so apparently it's thermal protection didn't it didn't actually fulfill its purpose. So it did a recall and, and, and oftentimes recalls are, are, can be issued by uh, federal agencies, but uh, a lot of companies do it voluntarily. I very much doubt that loot crate themselves uh, manufacture this product, but perhaps they right. had something to do with it or maybe the manufacturer asked them to do so. And you have to be cognizant about that. And recalls are expensive by the way, because the manu the, the there's someone that has to pay for that, and so oftentimes you can get the right insurance that may actually recover cover these recalls.
2: Or, I mean, if they had set it up correctly, I mean, they would have been protected. You know, they're they're kind of the middleman in this situation. They could have protected themselves with an agreement from the you know the vendor that they got it from. So,
1: and we'll and we'll talk about that later with relationships with your with your sellers, but. And even there's some states that, like Texas, actually in certain cases you you actually may have to be indemnified by the manufacturers, especially if it's a foreign foreign defendant. Or I'm sorry, if it's not a foreign defendant, then you actually can be indemnified by the manufacturer. And but if it's like, for example, in Texas, if it's a foreign defendant, like you know you have some some product that you imported from Europe, and so and and, and it causes some kind of damage, Texas law will actually allow the plaintiff. The consumer to sue the reseller instead of the manufacturer for what the manufacturer may have caused, and there's different reasons for that. And you know, I don't know if we need to discuss discuss that in detail, the the policy decisions behind that. But the idea is, is that don't think that just because you didn't create the product that you're not liable for it.
2: Mm-hmm. No, it's it's, uh, it's a good point. it's good points. Like you can buy all these products from from different vendors, throw them in a box, and be protected. Have this shield around you of of non liability so but, but the the specific glove kind of i think this is a good lead into to the next thing for these companies to think these subscription box businesses to think about that's intellectual property so in this case this is a a marvel thanos infinity gauntlet oven mitt obviously marvel is the one who who made this i i'm assuming i guess i should say obviously well
1: they at least put their name on it yeah Actually it says it's manufactured in China. I guess that doesn't give us much
2: more information. <laughs> so the so Luke crate, the one who, you know, took the item, put it in the box and, and mailed it to the consumer, they don't own that intellectual property. What I'll assume, again, I'm making a lot of assumptions here. What I'll assume is they had the right to, you know, basically take these this item and other items and there's no sort of infringement issues in in doing this resale or you know basically advertising or displaying the photo even on their website.
1: Yeah, because that's the main issue is that generally anything uh, this is a very generalized statement but anything you buy you can resell, right? Like if you want to open up your, not a lawn sale. What am I thinking of? Lemonade stand? Not a lemonade stand.
2: A concession stand?
1: (laughs) No, no, no. Like a garage sale. Like if you want to resell your stuff, besides maybe needing a seller's permit or something like that, you don't need the permission of the manufacturer to resell that item, even if it's for a profit. But the problem is when you start advertising the products that you're curated, right? Then all of a sudden you're getting into trademark infringement. And if you look at Loot Crate and their past crates, they advertise like crazy. They talk about, you know, we have the Hulk and uh, Hulk memorabilia in here. We have the fifth element. I'm just looking at now Warcraft, Dragon Ball Z. You know, you, they can't do that without getting kind of uh, permission for these licensed items. Even they themselves, I think, are mm-hmm. unique items. So they they made a deal with these resellers to, in order for them to allow use of this trademark. And so... Even though you may be curating and you may be able to sell this stuff, you got to be very careful with how you present it. And I think that's why a lot of these crates, they don't, they do these kind of secret boxes, right? You don't actually know what's in it until you actually receive it, right?
2: Yeah, some of them definitely do. I think the, well, I I'm, for Loot Crate, I'm not sure, I, I get, like I haven't bought one either i'm trying to see right now if
1: Luke Crate. i think i think you don't know what's coming
2: until you get it yeah i think you're right because i'm looking at the i clicked on one of the ones that says here's previous items so yeah i mm-hmm. would assume that's probably the case then is that you know you it's kind of it as that secrecy so you know that's that's one issue to think about in terms of the you know can't necessarily go in and advertise anything what about uh, this is an interesting situation so what about us the idea of you buy, so you're doing the curation and you buy a bunch of products and it has a, you know, a certain label on it or, you know, something that you're not sure whether you can resell or not. You just mentioned, you know, you can resell most things, but what if that's the case? I mean, obviously you, you can't just put that in a box and turn around and sell it then.
1: I, I know that's a softball question because <laughs> we, we, we've, we've gone through that with a client before. So like, yeah, it's a it's basically white labeling, right? You you have a product and you want to put your own branding on it and so forth. And yeah, that could be a huge problem if you don't get the right permissions. Mm -hmm. Right. Thinking very simply, if you buy a Snickers bar and then all of a sudden put your own own branding on top of it and sell it you know, as your own, (laughs) (laughs) own, own candy bar. Snickers isn't going to like that too much, right? That, that would definitely be a
2: problem. I would not suggest that route for So, If you're looking to start a subscription box business, I would avoid that, that plan. Yeah. Choose Milky Way. It's, they're much better. And so the, the one other IP item I want to talk about is when can all these companies expect the patent lawsuit to come down on them for some guy that claimed he has a patent for subscription box businesses from forty years ago. Other
1: than you're right. Other than other than those two issues, obviously the the regular trademarking of your business name perhaps and, and logos and so forth as, as typical with any business you may want to consider. But those those are pretty much the, the main intellectual property issues in the subscription box business. Sure.
2: I mean there's even descriptions now for in I forget the class number, but whatever class it is, there's descriptions for basically subscription-based services offering, you know, blank, whatever they're selling. So that's when you know the, the industry's really made it is when it starts having these specific descriptions in the, uh, for the trademarks. We,
1: we talked about working with uh, other uh, manufacturers and, and so dealing with other vendors and partnerships, whether it's within your own company or other vendors outside, is a pretty important part of any business, but especially in the subscription box business. A lot of times, they end up being a startup. So you often have the common partnership issues that you would have in any kind of startup. I'll, I'll like let you take that section, but I do, I do want to just touch on the suppliers and manufacturers that just like I'm sure Loot Crate may have done and other subscription boxes, getting a contract with these resellers or I should say these manufacturers or wholesalers even is actually pretty important when it comes to warranties. For example, Anytime you buy a product, there's usually a manufacturer's warranty. But that manufacturer warranty may not be extended to the consumer if the reseller is not an authorized reseller. Right. A lot of times these warranties are only from if only if you buy from authorized dealers or from the manufacturer themselves, right? And so making sure that those warranties are are on their continue its path needs to be authorized. That means you may need to make a deal with the manufacturer. Or you may have to have your own warranty if you want to, if that's important to you. And then second is we talked about the trademark aspect, but also identification. Like for example, you just we just we just talked about the product's liability. Creating a deal where if you buy a product and you tell them, look, you're going to identify me if your product kills somebody, right? <laughs> you know, and putting that into your agreement is an important part. And a lot of these companies that that's semi standard language when it comes to most items.
2: And another thing too that Michael overlooked, kind of along those lines, is and maybe this is a reason some of them some of them these companies do, do do have these unknown or secret box contents is if you don't have a strong relationship with the these vendors, suppliers, et cetera, you know, you, you need to have that because you don't want a situation where you're not getting the things that you need on time to assemble the box and ship it out to the customers. Because the customers pay, as we've documented, they pay, you know, probably the same time every single month. They're expecting delivery that same time and you know if things are late getting to you it's obviously going to be late getting to the end customer so it's yep. that's why i said it goes overlooked because it's it's something that you might not necessarily think about but it's it's very important because these suppliers are going to have you know more leverage than you may think just and that's not uh, i don't know if leverage is the right word but it, it's important to have that make sure they're they're on time as well
1: it's it's a huge point because I mean we've we've had experiences where clients have had troubles with their suppliers, mm-hmm. and it creates a PR problem. It it creates po- potential liability issues, and you know people are wanting get wanting to get refunds if they don't get it on time, and having those deadlines and
2: and I think the key with that is, is as long as you're not selling anything that's perishable, you just need to be or you need to be operating you know a month or two ahead of the game just so because those things are going to happen i mean there's going to be problems in the supplying. so obviously if you're more like a blue apron i guess you have to have fallback ways to to get the different ingredients you need and you know that's a much quicker turnaround time from when you get it to when you ship it out but for you know for the other businesses just building kind of that that lag time because you're most likely going to need it at some point. Especially when you start getting, when you get successful quick. I mean, that's really when the issue becomes up. Yeah. Because the fulfillment's going to be, it's going to take over. Yeah. If you really start spiking, let's say you go on, you go on Shark Tank, your website's probably going to crash that night. And then you're going to have a ton of orders to fulfill. Then you got a problem if you haven't really planned this out in advance.
1: (laughs) There is a tendency that, So these subscription box businesses have this kind of startup tech feel, right? I mean, even though it's not classically a tech company, there is, there is some, it's, I don't want to say brick and mortar to it, but there is some actual things, goods being sold, but I tell you whether it's a subscription box business or another business, when it comes to infighting between partners, it'll kill a business every time, right? Especially if it's in early stages. And Beshbox Company is a good example, right?
2: Right. And just before we get on that, real quick, I mean, you're exactly right. It's it has seemed to take on this startup mentality because we've we've seen it firsthand. We've had a lot of different companies reach out to us with these different ideas. So you can tell it's. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, good and bad ideas. Yeah. I mean, so definitely. You know, we won't mention any specifics, obviously, but some of them are not great ideas. <laughs> but yeah. So so uh, Beshbox and. This is a little bit confusing because there's a bunch of different entities in play here, but which we should talk about too in a second. Yeah, we'll, we yeah we'll get to that as well. But there's Chef John Bash is kind of the the key piece to all this. He has his restaurant groups, but he also started this kind of subscription component of it, where basically I think it was once a month for pretty yeah fifty five bucks. So not necessarily cheap. You would get his you know his his artistic his chef creation of of food and you know based on his his knowledge of the culinary arts and so it was his company or his restaurant group with this other entity with a head that was just the subscription component with it and they kind of worked in with a partnership with this other company which essentially was the know, the operating component of all this, basically the, the, I kind of look at it as sort of the fulfillment aspect, but it was more than that too. I think they took sales and really everything other than the idea. Yeah. Really just the the idea, I guess, behind the chef and his ingredients, things like that.
1: Everyone pretty much knows the story because they've heard it a hundred times is there were internal disagreements uh, between two of the partners. I think each put in a roughly. What one hundred and fifty thousand dollars each or so, which is a modest investment. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, two fifty each. I think the total capital was five hundred thousand. And because they couldn't really resolve in a thing, it's basically it basically killed the business. They had to separate. And-,
2: and one of the things that the operating component was being accused of is supposedly supposed to contribute half a million and and didn't do that, which I guess would make sense seeing how the whole concept is this chef is going to bring his culinary magic and to the table. No that wasn't even that was a no pun intended again. Um <laughs> but yeah, I mean I like you were saying, it's you have these two different groups coming together, hopefully to make this nice hybrid subscription box and and yeah, there's there's problems that come come with it. And I, I don't really blame them either. I mean the chef's work is really what's presented and you know it's it's their name right there. So if they thought something there's an issue with. There's something was kind of going wrong here. I, I don't blame him for, you know, for kind of backing out of this if if that was what happened. I mean, he's. They're also saying, let's see. There's a couple hundred thousand in refunds that need to be sent out, and I, I think they even said they were going to try to fulfill. You know, basically give those customers the money they thought they they deserved, or deliver the boxes, whichever. And even if it. You know, even if they don't have the obligation to do so, which was the case here, because the one who was supposed to contribute the money, the entity who was supposed to contribute the money, supposedly did not The oper- operating component, sorry. And,
1: and that was three or four years ago. So who knows if they relaunched in, in, in another way, but it, it goes to show you, I and mean, we've done many other episodes, articles on partnership agreements, company agreements, and maybe we can link a couple in the show notes here, but... Most of the time, the the main issue when it comes to that is getting really early and sitting down with your partners and specifying the terms between you guys. And usually when there's a problem, it's because it's something that you didn't originally anticipate, didn't originally discuss, and then something comes up like you need more capital. Where are we going to get it? How are we going to split it? And and so forth. So that's an important issue.
2: Yeah. And I think the, the, you know, particularly in this example, but... The subscription box business in general is a nice does kind of leave things open to have these various entities each play a piece which seemed to be the case here i mean if i had to guess we had the operating component which is the one the chef was battling with we had the the chef's restaurant group which has probably been around for a while and then they kind of spun off another entity just to be solely this the chef's subscription box component of his work so you know, I, I like the idea of having one entity, if if you can swing it, having one entity be the operating component. Maybe the other one being involved with the maybe the inventory, or you know what what have you. You can really set it up in a, a bunch of different ways, but I do like that that concept. And this model does kind of allow for for businesses to, to set up different entities.
1: Yeah. And 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 there's a lot of advantages for it. You can have different ownership structures in each. You can have different control and management structures for each. And it's also about splitting up liability. Right. And in the whole scheme of things, there are also maybe some tax reasons why you may want to do that as well. Of course, people in California are probably thinking like having more than one entity is not necessarily the the first thing on their mind because of the franchise fees and so forth and some other states are like that but but even that like when it comes to operating in the state of california or whether you qualify for doing business at doing business there you can you can possibly work with some of the rulings over there and have your operating entity being the one that's registered there and possibly some of your passive entities registered elsewhere. It kind of depends upon the rules and there's a lot of details to that. But the point is, is it's sometimes doable. But yeah, there's, a, there's I, I agree that that's probably what happened here, why there's multiple entities involved.
2: Okay. So, and this is, this is a nice tie-in as well. One of the reasons you might want to do that is you have to look to, again, look, kind of go back to your map that you've drawn out of the different operation points here. And look at each, you know, segment of the operations and see where the possible liability could be. And one of them, I think, maybe, maybe one of the biggest ones, or definitely one of the biggest ones, maybe the biggest one, is the shipping and delivery component of it. So, you know, I I mean, in this case, you can, they might have gone through a third party carrier, or you know, who, who knows what they actually went through, but. But there's a lot of issues that come into play with this for, for these subscription box businesses. And it can be anything from, you know, it, there's federal and state regulations, particularly if you're importing products from, from outside the United States, or I guess if you have customers internationally as well, you know, there's issues of importation and, and how that works, who the end customer is going to be. what Are you importing to yourself? Are you importing as a customer? buying a box from overseas, et cetera. And then just the, the delivery logistics as well. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, you have, and for a lot of them, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, if you buy a, a loot crate, it's a thing of, you know, maybe some articles of clothing, some toys, et cetera. It gets delivered to your to your doorstep. You don't have to worry about it. But, but what about something like Blue Apron or one of the other perishable food boxes You know, you have to put a lot more thought into that on the operational side and on the business side for your customers, because, you know, just for those of you who aren't aware of Blue Apron, I mean, it's what they deliver is all the ingredients to make, you know, I think it's, you know, roughly like three meals a week or whatever, whatever you order, but all the ingredients to make X amount of meals. And so you're talking, you know, things like spices, which don't really go bad, but also Vegetables, meat, which obviously could go bad. So you really need to to think about how how this delivery mechanism or this delivery component is going to work. Because you know you're going to run into plenty of dissatisfied customers if you can't get that item, you can't get that piece down.
1: And then and then also when you're shipping across state lines, depending upon what you are actually shipping, you may actually have to think about you know some federal regulations as well. Forget about food. What if it's alcohol or cannabis, for example?
2: Yeah, well, uh, alcohol is tough. I kind of look at it in three different com- three different areas. You have wine, which I think is the easiest to to ship, and then beer, actually, probably, and then you have hard alcohol, which is you know pretty difficult. And there's a whole slew of regulations. I mean, wine's actually a little bit more accepted, and you know you can't you're gonna to have to use a third-party carrier you know not usps but like a fedex or uh, something to that effect to do it and there's certain i mean there's there's a whole thing of rules and regulate rules you have to follow and disclosures and notices I mean with alcohol you I believe you most likely have to have the end customer sign off on it you know sign for it when the package gets delivered to your to your house so I mean really it's yeah but you got to mention cannabis as well I mean there's a whole it's there's there's different items that can cause a lot more problems for you
1: and even with like for example marijuana even if you're within a state that it's legalized even shipping within the state because you may be using like federal post office (laughs) or u.s postal service that's an issue and even of course any kind of shipper will will want to know what you're if you're shipping those kinds of material and and going through their processes as well so
2: yeah, exactly. So
1: I, that that's pretty much our our breakdown of subscription box businesses. I mean, there's always going to be other issues, but th- those from our experience, those are the main ones. I mean, we've talked about everything from your subscription terms and conditions to product liability, intellectual property that's specific to subscription box businesses. And of course, you know, the, the partnerships, right, that you have both with vendors and within yourselves. And, and of course, uh, Matt wrapped up nicely with. The shipping and delivery aspect of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, and if, if people are interested, we have we've set up a monthly subscription box. At each month, will deliver the legal aspects that we talked about, but one different component. So <laughs> it's a pretty nice thing they can sign up for. <laughs>
1: uh, your our podcast,
2: basically, or <laughs> no, it's it's actually printed on paper. It's just transcription, and you can just read it.
1: Yeah, and we send it to the mail. Exactly. Very good. War well, right, well, thanks for joining us looking forward to our next episode where we cover some other business and give the ultimate legal breakdown for it.
2: Definitely. And as always, keep it sound, keep it smart.
0: This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasir Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound, Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney.